This is Bonjour Chai, the Nobody Wins Unless Everybody Wins edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I am here with Melissa Lanceman in Toronto and Alana Zakon in Vancouver. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's episode, we talk about the unfolding violence in the Middle East, and we will interview Robert Brim about the report on American Jewry by the Pew Institute and its relevance for the Canadian Jewish landscape. How are you guys doing? It's a Thursday, an anxiety-ridden Thursday for me. <laughs> we'll get there. Alana, less anxious? Things are good? Yeah, we'll get there. I, I Honestly, it's it's hard. Things are, are fine for me in my life, but you know, as Melissa said, it's hard, it's hard to stay away from the truth of what's going on personally. So that is how I'm doing today, but otherwise life is good. The sun is shining, so. Same here. So um, uh, clearly that is gonna be the subject of our first topic. Before we get to our first topic, let's just hear from our sponsor, um, Atelier Lou. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Westmount, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in custom-designed jewelry as well as many lines including Anzi, Deacon and Francis, Dana Bronfman, and many, many more. If you're looking to upgrade that engagement ring, pop the question, come talk to Eric and design the ring of your dreams. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour Chai listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. I can just say, by the way, related to Atelier Lou, I, uh, there was a watch that I was uh, checking out online this week, and I knew that Eric carried Seiko's. Uh, Eric is uh, the uh, proprietor of Atelier Lou and a good friend of mine. And uh, I texted him. I'm like, are you getting these in? He goes, I already have one in. And it was a limited edition. I was like, oh, okay, perfect. Um, I will uh, come in and check it out. So uh, Eric has always been responsive, and he's always ahead of the game anytime. I think I'm like really on top of things, and he's way more on top of them when it comes to these issues. Uh, yeah, okay, well, tell us, did you get did you get it yet? Did you get the watch? I did not yet get it. I still have to ponder it. Watches are not, you know, cheap. Yeah. Um, but I do like watches, and so, uh, yeah. It's an investment. An investment. Anyways, <laughs> over the past week, Israel and Gaza have been engaged in a violent conflict. Depending on who you ask, this is either the result of Israeli evictions in East Jerusalem and their mistreatment of worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, or this is just the Palestinian Authority and Hamas using violence to distract from their own political woes. Regardless of what one believes, this is a terrible, terrible situation. Uh, and without rehashing all the same talking points that we continue to see online and in print, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Alana, what's going on in your mind? Yeah. I mean, I know for me, I've just been feeling, like we said before, very, very anxious. As someone who works in the arts community, specifically in the acting world, it's honestly frightening, genuinely frightening. I received a message from a friend earlier in the week when when it just all started on the news and she warned me not to go on Instagram. And I immediately removed my app and I haven't looked at it once all week because she said the amount of people, artists who are on the other side of things um, and it's very one-sided is astounding and was making her feel really unsafe. So I have my own personal experiences with dealing with a lot of anti-Semitism online in the past and I have a lot of trigger around that. So I took her advice immediately. And the thing that, that I'm finding really difficult is that there are some people who have never, ever shared their opinions on what's going on in Israel and Palestine before. And suddenly now there are pictures going around that people are reposting, from what I'm understanding, without having 
an educated background on the situation. And, it, and it's just kind of like the, you know, wanting to show support without having a, a grounded background. And then it becomes very one sided. And as a Jewish person who, you know, is in more left circles, I feel unsafe. And so it makes me want to kind of hide. And as someone who isn't an Israeli citizen, I don't feel comfortable even making a public post about it, even on my personal Facebook page, because I don't know what other people think. I'm worried that people could attack me. And I'd, you know, I, unlike a lot of people who know less, as I said, I'd rather stay silent and talk to people who I trust, which is my family or close Jewish friends for the most part. I am, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in here. And, and first I'm, I'm going to say that I am running for office and I look at the politics of, uh, of all of this, but put that aside. And I do think we should be concerned about the Canadian government's response um, and, and where it's headed. Cause I think it's the worst one and the slowest one in 20 years. I'll talk about this as a Jew first. And the way that I see it, this, the woke activism that you talk about Alana, well, I have been on Instagram and I have, uh, uh, you know, I have looked at it and I feel that as somebody who, you know, stands up for LGBT rights um, because I think love is love and somebody who stands up for Black Lives Matter because I do think there's institutional racism and as somebody who looks at refugees and wants a family reunification because I think strong families are the right thing to do, I can't help to think that as a Jew, when when, when it comes to uh, what's going on, indiscriminate rocket fire onto Israeli civilian population that nobody is standing up for me. And you can't help to think that. Yeah. And I will touch on, on the government response. And I did say, I think this is the weakest, most moral equivalency that I have seen from a Canadian government on both sides. We make no mistake about it. This is a terrorist organization backed by Iran who wants to see the destruction of Israel firing rockets indiscriminately onto both their own people and to Israeli citizens in big cities and the Canadian government doesn't call that out and we should be really really concerned as a Jewish community because I've, I haven't seen anything like this it is it is a it is a question of, of, of moral clarity and I can't help to feel as a, you know, as a Jew, nobody's standing up for me. And as a Canadian, our, our voice is one of the last to come. Um, and it's one of the weakest I've ever seen. Well, I mean, it's, it's not like, I mean, they all came late, right? Virtually every world leader was hoping this would be a day or two and then it would be gone. And so uh, the foreign minister, who happens to be my MP, um, and the prime minister, uh, and even Aaron O'Toole did not make statements very early on in this. Um, everybody is talking about both sides. But to be fair, um, there are both sides, right? There are people on the other side that we have to be aware 100%. of. hundred percent. cannot, you know, and, and again, this is not about the uh, the... Everything that what you have said is, is completely correct in terms of there are people that are having rocket fire on a major metropolitan area um, that is unconscionable. And there is also people on the other side that are living in squalor whose political leadership has nothing, is doing nothing for them. Um, and we have to recognize that those people are there as well, right? That those people do not represent, right? Uh, 
regardless of whether yeah. you like it or not, Hamas is not the voice, right, of the people. And they, regardless of whether you agree or not, that they are the, um, that they use this as a delaying tactic for their election, where, where you know, they may not do as well as they thought that they would. I, I'm not going to get into that, right? I, I, I don't, I'm not taking a stand on this. They do not represent the majority of the people that are, you know, that they are governing over. Uh, and, and we have to take that side just as much and recognize that the vast majority of people that are living in those territories are not are, are not being treated like human beings. I have to completely agree with you, Avi, on that. And I think that's the issue that I'm going back to before about social media is you're not seeing both sides. And that's one thing that, you know, although the statements from politicians did come way too late, something I appreciated was the focus on peace and, and recognizing that both sides are suffering and going through things and having impact. I think it is important to acknowledge the, both sides of the situation because it's so complex, which is the issue that I'm seeing of a lot of people only seeing one side. Um, and especially from a Jewish perspective, you know, it, it gets into the, the whole thing of, you know, anti-Israel sentiment bleeding into anti-Semitism, not really knowing where people stand. It gets very convoluted and, and it's hard to gauge what you can talk about safely, if that makes any sense. No, I think it does. Um, but it, that's, you know, this goes back to the point that Melissa made last week, where it's about conversations, right? And in that sense, totally, uh, I don't even know what to think about social media anymore, because in that sense, it has both utterly failed based on what you have, you know, talked about, uh, Alana, but but it is the first time probably in many, many years for a lot of people. And if not for social media, there are people who would never get to see what the other side looks like because the media um, it would have been bifurcated otherwise. And, and in that sense, the ability for anybody to read anything um, and to be fed anything from anywhere um, has started these conversations. It's not. And, and these tough conversations. It's not only social media. It's, it's mainstream media. It's presenting one side of the story. And you can't help to think that as a Jewish Canadian, um, uh, a Jewish person on this planet living outside in the diaspora, that nobody is willing to come to, uh, to your rescue. This is, again, whether, you know, whether the terrorist organization who, by the way, this Canadian government funds um, through, through relief programs, indirectly or directly, whatever conversation you want to have uh, uh, about it. Canada also making, has, has been making arms sales to Israel for, for years and years and years. So Yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the bargaining chip. At, at $14 million of, uh, of arm, arms, I think that, that is a, it is a moot conversation. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, an Israeli civilian population and Israel takes a lot of care uh, when it, uh, you know, when it when it has its right to defend itself and it retaliates to indiscriminate rocket fire to make sure that those civilian populations aren't hit. And that story is not getting out. Uh, and I know that there are many in our Jewish community but who know it's, that it's getting out using social media. Well, it's right. That's what I'm saying. It's not the mainstream media. Outlets are not reporting those things, Correct. but the people are because these conversations are starting to happen because people it's people that are on those sides. Sorry, Alana, on the people on the ground that are saying, listen, um, I know because my son is in the army and I know what he tells me. And he's telling me that it's complicated and that we are being as, as focused as we possibly can. And yet uh, rockets are being fired into, you know, civilian areas indiscriminately. And, and, and so it's the people that are reporting these things um, and not necessarily the mainstream media. And so we can say, listen, I'm not going to rely, just as I may not rely on the CBC because I think that they're going to be biased on that side. I shouldn't rely on Fox 
to, to, to report this, you know, Israel is the, you know, holiest country ever and has zero blood on their hands and is not doing anything wrong whatsoever, whatsoever, right? Where we have to recognize that, uh, you know, that we have to listen to both sides and we have to realize that the truth is somewhere in between and that the people that are talking about this on their own within the conversations are the places where, um, where we should be, you know, doing more and listening to more and, and hearing our truths. Alana, sorry for cutting you off. So I think the difference is that when you're on social media, you're controlling who you see. So if you follow a whole bunch of people that have the same point of view as you, then you're actually only really getting one side. And I agree with you that the personal testimony, I think, is the most effective, but that's not what most people are doing. Most people are creating little graphics that they, that they don't know anything about. They're creating it from outside of the Middle East and then sharing it and then all their friends are reposting it. So we're not getting a, a full realistic picture from social media necessarily. I think that there are incidents like that, but that's not the majority of what the posts are. Okay. Well, on that note, um, you know, I will mention that the, uh, what I really believe, you know, across all of these pieces is that uh, in the words of Bruce Springsteen, uh, nobody wins unless everybody wins. My my kids hear this all the time when when they're fighting. I'm like, we got to come up with a solution that's going to be okay for everybody. Um, unless, and you know, if that doesn't happen, then it's completely, totally gone. Um, and they they know they're like, okay, Abba, nobody wins unless everybody wins, and then they just they move on. Um, but I really believe that that is true in this case. The conversations will lead to everybody winning because in, as long as no as long as not everybody is winning, we are completely completely lost. Melissa, you get the last word. Okay. I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I should say this, that the, again, there's a community that's feeling uh, a ton of anxiety and we feel a bit powerless. And the thing that we can do is, uh, uh, you know, is, is check in and uh, call people to, uh, to account. That's the thing that we've always done. And that's the thing that we should continue to do as the, uh, as the Jewish community in Canada. This week, the uh, Pew Research Center released their study on Jewish Americans in 2020. This report, which follows up on their earlier study in 2013 on the topic, was hotly anticipated by many in the Jewish community and will be analyzed closer than a piece of Talmud by Jewish professionals in America and beyond for quite some time. With us to talk about the report and its implications for the Canadian Jewish community is Robert Brim, who is the S.D. Clark Chair in Sociology at the University of Toronto. Robert, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you very much. First of all, can you give us some highlights of the document itself, the report? Yes. Uh, the core Jewish population of the United States has remained stable approximately between 2013-2020, maybe increased a little bit, up to 100,000 people. Uh, largely due to immigration. Uh, there's been some movement or some, I would say, polarization between denominations. There's been an increase in the proportion of Orthodox and uh, a decrease in the proportion, uh, sorry, an increase also on the other side in the proportion of Jews in the United States who say they don't identify with any denomination. Meanwhile, the denominations in the middle seem to be stable to shrinking. And that's largely due to the rather rapid population increase on the part of the Orthodox and the movement of people in the middle denominations 
to the no denomination side. Interesting. So the middle is weakening and the extremes uh, are increasing in size proportionately in percentage terms. Right. So instead of a regression to the mean, we're regressing to the extremes. We're having a bit of a reverse bell curve. And that's true. Yeah. And that's that's true, not just for Jews. It's true for uh, all religions in the United States and in Canada as well. I noticed that the, the questions sort of start off with ethnically, uh, you know, ethnically or culturally Jewish versus religiously Jewish. Um, what does that do to the, the data and, and how is that going to play out, uh, I think, in sort of the, let, let's add the Canadian census in here, seeing as though most of us have gotten it. Right. Uh, the Canadian census is kind of a mess, uh, especially since, uh, 2016 and arguably since 2011 with respect to the counting of Jews. We have a pretty good estimate of the number of Jews from 2011, which is about 385,000. Uh, then in 2016, uh, something happened. First of all, the 2016 census uh, doesn't ask about religion. It only asks about ethnicity. That's normal. The seventh year of every decade, the religion question is dropped. It, it, it's there only for the second year uh, of each decade, 2001, 2011, 2021. So we only have an ethnicity count for 2016, which is normal. Uh, but the other thing is that the question stem changed. In other words, the question being asked in 2011 was different from the question being asked in 2016. Specifically, when they said, uh, how do you identify in terms of your ethnic or cultural background, that was the same. But in 2016, they didn't include Jewish as an example of ethnicity. In 2011 and in preceding years, they did include Jewish. Now, you might think that dropping Jewish would have little impact. But in fact, what happened was the count of Jews by ethnicity dropped by 54% between 2011 and 2016. And Statistics Canada admits that that's probably because Jewish was no longer given as an example of an ethnic group or a cultural group. And do we know why it was dropped? Yeah, I do know why it was dropped. Since 1996, Statistics Canada has included examples, depending upon how numerous uh, any particular group is in the preceding census. And not just how numerous they are, but how many people chose one uh, ethnic identifier only. In other words, they counted how many people cho uh, chose Jewish only. And right. the number fell below the threshold. That is to say, we didn't make it into the top groups anymore of single identifiers as Jews. We did if you included multiple identifiers, I'm Jewish and Russian and so on. I consider that to be a bias of Statistics Canada, because if you're Jewish, <clears throat> you come from, I don't know, Poland or Everywhere. Russia or Morocco, yeah. and you're likely to say, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish and, and, and Russian background. But if you're Greek, for example, and the Greeks did make it on, they're not going to say Greek and something else, they're going to say Greek. So the Greeks right. are in, although the total number of people identifying as Greek is fewer than the total number of people identifying as Jewish as of 2016. So we dropped down to 154,000 or something like that in 2016. Now in 2021, we'll still be dropped. However, in 2021, 
you have an option. And that is that although we're not mentioned, people are told if you want to see lists, a list of other ethnic groups, please click here. And then you go to a list of 264 ethnic groups. Now, they did a pilot study at Statistics Canada to see how that would affect the, you know, the number of people who choose any of the ethnic categories that are on that big list of 264, but not in the question stamp. And the answer is it affects it very little. Very few people apparently bother to pour through a list of 264 names to find out if they're on the list. So my guess mm. is that when it comes to the 2021 census, which will include religion and ethnicity, but not mention Jews in the question stem, we're going to wind up with something like a Jewish population in Canada, or a count of Jewish population, in the neighborhood of 250,000. Although the Israel Central Bureau of Statistics tells us, I think quite accurately, that the number of Jews in Canada today is about 393,000. Can I can I take a step back? I mean, I do want to go back to the Pew at some point because it talks about behaviors within the Jewish community. But as as a raw number, I don't know if you if if anybody here on this this uh, thing today is is aware. But this week's Torah portion is actually Parshat Bamidbar, where we have the first major Jewish census. It talks about uh, right. Uh, this is like sociologist bar mitzvah parsha, right? Like Parshat Bamidbar. It's a right. right. I understand why historically one may have needed a census. It's about taxes. It's about um, uh, military uh, strength and things along those lines. Why do we even need a number of Jews to be told by us by St Statistics Canada if we have other means? Why is it so important? Or is it just important for local federations and national yeah. federations to be able to, you know, lobby and say, this is how, how many people we represent? From a sociologist perspective, what difference does it make if Canada or whoever messes up the the national number of Jews? Well, it's you already mentioned one reason why it's important. It's important for Jewish organizations. We need to plan social welfare organizations, educational institutions, and so on in proportion to population size. So it's certainly important for us. Why is it important uh, beyond that? It's important because, you know, politicians listen to constituents, at least to some degree. And there are various ways of influencing uh, what politicians do. And one of the ways of influencing them is saying, we are numerous. If you're a small little group, they're not going to listen. If you're a larger group, they'll listen more. Of course, that's not this population size is not the only factor determining how well politicians listen to particular categories of the population. But it's certainly an important thing because people vote and Jews have a high rate of voting. So if we have but that stands to reason, the, the, the assumption behind that is that, um, you know, when we say that we are lobbying on behalf of Jews, that people are lobbying on behalf of all Jews. Um, right. But that's increasingly not true anymore. Right. We are a diverse uh, group politically. Um, and, you know, we have we, we have many people who have many opinions on many uh, issues of the spectrum. Yes. Having the sheer number of saying Jews do this doesn't necessarily equal Jews represent Israel in this regard or Jews represent, no, um, you know, liberal voting in this regard versus NDP voting. That you're absolutely correct, which is why we need surveys that tell us about attitudes and behaviors. And that's something that's sorely lacking in uh, in Canada. In Canada. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're just awful. We're worse in terms of our survey research on Jews. We're worse than Australia which has one third of the Jewish population of Canada. 
never mind comparing us to the United States or, or even Britain, which has a smaller population, but does a lot more survey research on Jews in Britain and in Western Europe more generally. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I mean, the established Jewish community in Canada has not uh, seen it uh, necessary to fund research on the Jewish community, survey research. The 2018 survey of, Canada, of, of Jews in Canada, in which I participated and organized, was the first survey of its kind in this country. I mean, in the United States, surveys of Jews have been conducted since the 1930s. Seven huge surveys have been conducted in the past 50 years, and this is our first in 2018. And I might add that all the, although the Jewish community that has established Jewish organizations were uh, generous in contributing to this uh, uh, survey, the sum total contribution of the Jewish community to the survey in terms of dollars was one third the cost of the survey. The rest came from, you know, our, in, our research funds and from Enveronics itself. Would you, would you speculate as to possibly why? Do you think that there's a fear of, of the established Jewish community recognizing that there is a, a greater diversity than they would like to imagine? I don't think so. The 2018 survey found that diversity and uh, the Jewish community recognized it. There's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, why, it would be odd if we weren't a diverse group. We come from so many different origins, so many different age groups. We grew up in different settings. Of course, we're going to be diverse. What's, what's the most important piece of data? And we'll go back to Pew, because we certainly don't, <clears throat> sounds like we don't have it here in Canada. But what's the, what's the most important pieces to take away from this uh, as, a, you know, as a Jewish community? Uh, it seems like you know, once you start to get down to the, to the questions of, of, of intermarriage, that's when, uh, that's when Jewish communities certainly pounce on, uh, on this survey data. But in your view, what is this, you know, what's the big piece, what's the takeaway here? Well, I've already mentioned a couple of takeaways about, you know, population size and the denominational shift. <clears throat> Another really important one is precisely intermarriage. Uh, one of the most interesting findings of this 2002 uh, Pew survey of American Jewry is that when people intermarry, the proportion who raise their children as Jews has increased since 2013. That's interesting, right? There's a, there's a certain proportion that raised their, when if they intermarried, uh, raise the proportion of Jews, and that proportion has increased. I can't remember offhand the exact number, but it was a significant increase. And uh, we also found that in 2018 survey of Canadian Jews, that a, a, a quite a large proportion of people who intermarry raise their kids as Jews. I mean, I'm an example. Uh, I intermarried, my wife converted, but our kids all went to, you know, to Bialik, and one of them went on to chat here in Toronto, they're very much Jewish. Uh, and we have a Jewish family, a Jewish household. Uh, that's not uncommon in Canada, and it's increasingly uncommon in the United States to, uh, uh, it's, it's normalized, in other words, to raise your kids as Jews if you've intermarried. So that's, that's a really interesting thing that people will pick up on. And so since it's increased, yeah, that I find that really fascinating and surpri surprising, actually, considering the shift. I'm curious, looking at the data, do you see any reasons, in your opinion, why you think it's increasing based on the other 
factors? I, I, I don't know. I don't want to start speculating too much, but I, you know, I haven't, and I haven't gotten into the data themselves yet. Uh, I expect there's plenty of reason to be proud of being Jewish. I think that people are increasingly defensive about being Jewish because they feel threatened. And I think those factors increase the strength of Jewish identity yeah. and will lead people to want to raise their kids as Jews, both as a matter of pride and defiance. Totally. I'm curious, just circling back a little bit, um, if you can give us an example of a tangible impact that the census results have created for the Canadian Jewish community. Well, I, we've already mentioned a couple. I mean, we, we can't use it as effectively as a method of uh, studying ourselves. And that's bad for academics like me, and it's bad for Jewish mm -hmm. community organizations. Uh, the Jewish community may have somewhat lesser impact on politicians as a result. I think those are the, 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 the three main problems. Right. I think my, my question was more so, is there a tangible... Um change that has happened, like an organization gave more money towards a certain population of Jewish people that they saw in the survey was being unattended to or something like that, like a particular incident. You don't know. I don't know. You would have to ask people who are in charge of Jewish organizations and not mere academics Fair questions enough. like that. I don't know. Um, what were some of the surprises that people are looking at in the Pew study that were, uh, you know, we're not expecting to see, but really, you know, jumped off of the uh, the report that were really interesting? I, I can give, you know, I, I, I can only repeat myself here because I haven't gotten into it deeply. I mean, the, the polarization, the increasing tendency of intermarried people to raise their kids as Jews, the change in population size. Uh, those are, are things that stand out initially. Uh, I would mention that, you know, part of the uh, issue with the accuracy of the findings in the Pew survey has to do with the fact that they changed the methodology and they changed the way they sampled. They sampled in a different way. I won't get into the technicalities, but I can tell you that it's a different kind of survey. The 2013 survey was uh, based on telephone interviews. The 2020 survey was done online or by mail. And when you, you know, it, just changing the wording of a question can have a huge impact on the results. When you start changing the methodology too, that can also have a big uh, impact on the results. What you really need is a stable definition of what a Jew is. You need a stable method of assessing that. And then you can make accurate or more accurate statements over time in all kinds of uh, parameters of the Jewish population. Once you start messing with that stuff, you're, you know, you're comparing apples and oranges. Yeah, but I mean, we have to admit that the, the definitions are evolving and changing over time. I mean, 50 years ago, um, we would have never included, you know, any sort of definition of interfaith relationships. Um, or yes. children of interfaith relationships for the vast majority of Jews, and those people are be, would would have been cut off. But now we are we are work we are bending over backwards, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to figure out how best to include this you know burgeoning sector of the population. Yes, that's very important. There's no problem with having a core definition and then adding additional questions which let you tap other categories. But that core definition has to be there, and if you start messing with the question stem. 
the basic question that asks, you know, are you Jewish or do you identify as a Jew, then it's a problem. What, what are we, in terms of the behaviors, right? Because like I said, the, it's not just about numbers. The Pew uh, report does look at Jewish behaviors. I, you know, I, I was shocked to find uh, two, the two things I found interesting were that uh, one, that uh, we lead the uh, population in America in terms of same-sex marriages. Um, and we, you know, we actually have uh, one of our members is one of the one of those trailblazers. Melissa um, is is in that community and w- way disproportionately than the re- rest of the population. We are we are we are doing that. Uh, the other one that I found interesting was in terms of uh, uh, interaction with Chabad, that uh, almost 20 percent of the population had a somewhat to a large amount of interaction with a Chabad emissary at some point in the recent past. Um, and. How are these playing out in Canada? I mean, because like I said, the American Jewish psyche and the Canadian Jewish psyche are very, very different. Uh, maybe you can enlighten us to those that will be reading, you know, these reports and these findings and the 10 key takeaways from various news outlets. Um, give us a brief overview of how you see the differences, broadly speaking, between Canadian and American Jews when we're looking at these things. Well, I mean, Chabad is very active here as well, particularly on university campuses. And I wouldn't be surprised if another survey is taken in Canada, like the 2018 survey, we find increased contact with Chabad here as well. Uh, I know uh, when my youngest daughter was at McGill, she was involved in Chabad activities, although we're not a Hasidic family by any means. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think... More broadly speaking, generally speaking, in terms of like the behaviors, American versus Canadian Jewry, what what are we looking at? How, How would we generally define the differences, the the uniqueness of Canadian Jewry? Well, comparing, I mean, I know the 2013 Pew survey well, and of course I know the 2018 survey of Canada's Jews well. And on making that comparison, I can say that there is a striking difference between the two communities. We're much more cohesive. Jews in Canada are much more likely to have visited Israel. We contribute a lot more uh, to uh, Jewish organizations. We attend synagogue more frequently. We celebrate Jewish holidays, more, 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 we're more likely to celebrate all Jewish holidays. Our kids are more likely to go to full-time uh, Jewish day school. And we're talking about big differences uh, here, not small differences. So this, the Canadian Jewish community, uh, I conclude, is a much more cohesive community than the U.S. community. And you can see it partly in terms of the denominational composition of the two groups. I mean, reform is the giant uh, denomination in, uh, in the United States. Conservative is the giant uh, denomination in Canada. We have a higher proportion of people who are Orthodox here than in the United States. We're about the same on those who say they have no religion. That, that proportion is about the same. So the, the, the less assimilative re- uh, denominations are large in Canada relatively small in the United States. That's a very big difference. Yeah, when, I, when I was living in the U.S., uh, people would ask me, you know, what does it mean, you know, as Canadian Jews? What, what difference is it? And the example I would give, and it's very true for Montreal, less, somewhat less, slightly less true for other cities in the States, but in, in Canada. But I would say that, God forbid, that the shul that you drive to on Shabbos shouldn't be an Orthodox shul. <laughs> right. And that, that to me is, is what encapsulates, you know, Mon- Canadian Jewry and definitely Montreal Jewry and that we have this sense of tradition, even if we ind- as individuals may be different um, than the synagogue that we go to. Um, but, 
you know, we have to have huge to tradition when it comes to these things, hence the orthodox and conservative, you know, outsize uh, influence, right. or so to speak. I'll, I'll ask one more question, Rob. Uh, we're, we're a Canadian yeah. podcast, and I want to know um, specifically on, uh, on your work in the uh, 2018 survey, some of the differences uh, across the country in terms of jury. Oftentimes we talk about it from a, a very Toronto or Montreal perspective, um, and we like to talk to everyone here. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, Toronto has almost half of Canada's Jews, and Montreal has a third. So talking about it from the point of view of Montreal and Toronto does make a certain amount of sense. I mean, that's most of Canadian Jewry right there. But Hey, I'm not arguing. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a maritimer, so I think it's important to, uh, to look at Jews right across the country. Uh, you seem surprised, Avi. No, we care about the Jews in Antigonish. Really, right. we Very really good. do. <laughs> I hope St. John is also included, because that's where I'm from. It, it is. Okay. I did visit the synagogue there. Oh, really? Yeah. A while ago, yeah. I, I don't know if they can get a minion anymore. It's shrunk. Probably not. But when I was a kid, we had a Jewish activity. We were 250 members of the community. We had a Jewish activity for the kids every single day of the week, except for Friday. You know, some organized activity. So these are very cohesive communities, many of them. But nonetheless, today, in the 2018 survey, we find that as you move west, people are less involved in Jewish activities. They intermarry more. They, it's a less cohesive community. And that's especially true for Vancouver. Vancouver yeah, I, I'm based in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. So I'm, the, reading those stats was very interesting. Yeah, the Vancouver com Jewish community, just looking at it sociologically, uh, looks a lot like an American Jewish community. Yeah. In terms of friendship patterns, uh, intermarriage patterns, uh, ritual observance, and so on. Yeah, it's been, it's been very interesting for me to observe. I, I'm a Montrealer who lives in Vancouver. So to see the difference, it's very clear the differences. There's a lot more interfaith dating, a lot more people who are in various denominations. And I find that a lot of the people in my generation as a millennial are more reconstructionist or unaffiliated or just secular. Uh, way, right. way more. Uh, that's a, a very, uh, that ob observation is supported by yeah. data. And uh, <laughs> um, it must be shocking for a Montrealer in some ways to move to oh, Vancouver. Totally. For that reason. Totally. Yeah. Well, it's like the opposite of what, what Avi said about the synagogues is people are not going to the synagogue that they don't necessarily like live the life of. They're just going to the one that they do, which is a completely different denomination that's most popular in Montreal, for example. Very, very different. Right. To wrap things up, if, I mean, hopefully everybody's listening to our podcast, the entire Canadian Jewish population, and there will be a massive push towards creating more uh, and better data about Canadian Jews. What would be on your wish list for being able to examine um, Canadian Jewry um, going forward if there were to be a 2022 survey? Um, you know, what are the things that we need to be looking at because we know that that, that data is very incomplete and needs to, to be filled up better? Well, I, you know, first of all, I'd like to see the Jewish community of Canada step up and support uh, regular nationwide surveys, even better ones than we conducted in 2018. It would be nice to have something like that every decade. Um, and so, and, and I think that, you know, it, it, we, it, we would be well served to, uh, to mirror the kinds of questions that the Pew survey asked. This is a very good questionnaire. It's extremely rich in data, it's going to be mined for years, and hundreds of articles are going to be published on it. I don't mean just newspaper articles, but also academic articles. 
Um, so we need to follow, I, I don't usually like saying this, but we need to follow the U.S. lead in, in terms of survey research. Uh, and uh, my hope is that we'll examine the same kinds of attitudinal and behavioral uh, indicators that are so richly provided in, in Pew 2020. Thank you so much. Uh, Robert Brim is the SD Clark Chair in Sociology at the University of Toronto. I do hope that you can come uh, on again if we have any issues about uh, understanding the community better. Uh, thank you very much, and we will uh, talk again soon, I hope. It will be my pleasure. Thank you. Let's move on to our Nachas of the Week, where we'd like to highlight something which has come across our radar and given us Nachas as Jewish Canadians. Alana, what's been giving you Nachas? So my Nachas of the Week is I participated in an event that was organized by Moisha House with the Jewish Studio Process Online, and this was with a rabbi based in Seattle who did an event about the Omer as we're leading up to Shavuot. And um, it was basically an art exercise where we talked about First, in a discussion, that's kind of their process. You have a discussion in like a chavruta type of thing. Then you uh, journal and then you do an art piece. So we talked about what it was like going through the pandemic and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel in the same way as in the Omer. We went between freedom to slavery, receiving the Torah at Sinai, that kind of stuff. And honestly, I made some really interesting uh, discoveries about some of the things I've realized about my life and changes that I wanted to make. from reflecting on the whole year. It gave me kind of this feeling, like I created a container that was really lovely. Melissa, what's been giving you nachas? Well, I'm on, um, you know, I'm on a movie kick to uh, to forget, you know, sort of everything that's going on once in a while in our perpetual um, lockdowns. And I don't know how we missed this, but did did you guys catch the uh, the Moel? The Moel, no. So this is a, this. speaking of small Jewish communities, we talked a little bit about this, but it was filmed in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and it's a short. And if you have 14 minutes, um, this is, you know, this is the typical conversation of you were born into, uh, into a city in a small town uh, in Canada, and there, you know, there's nobody to do uh, the bris. And this is, you know, 16 minutes on that. I suggest that you watch it. I got a really big kick out of it. Check it out. It's called The Moil. Is it cutting edge? It's cutting edge. I see what you did there. My nachas has been um, something that, uh, it's actually a throwback. It's from 2004. Um, it's an album that uh, has never left my running playlist. And I was like, why? And it hit me when I was running this week. It just, the album came back on, uh, you know, because there's hundreds and hundreds of songs on there. Um, it's an old album, 2004, by this uh, band called Beyond Eden. And the album was called On The D. And it was a Toronto group of people led by this guy, Chaim Newman. Uh, Chaim Newman, from what I'm told in his band and music in college days, was our uh, wonderful uh, editor at the CJN Yoni's uh, musical Nemesis. That was their their competition. There was that like you know uh purple rainish sort of like you know (laughs) world going on there um but it was this wonderful slice of like post acid jazz funk retro sort of thing but like jewish with uh, like jewish covers and originals um and a lot of fun and a lot of funky and we really had um a lot of fun with it and uh he had a lot of fun with it i never got to see them live i had their album it has literally in 15 years never left uh some of my you know semi-constant rotation um it's fun it's funky we'll uh we'll use some of it to uh to close out the uh the the, the day um and uh i really like it a shout out to Chaim newman who I'm, I'm told is a psychologist still in toronto uh working in the music industry as a psychologist which is kind of interesting cool. um, but go check it out it is not available there are individual used copies 
is available on Amazon um, and in random corners of the internet. Um, maybe there's another place that somebody can tell us where they can find it. Um, but Beyond Eden on the D, straight all the way from the Toronto funk scene of 2004. Um, that's been my Nachos of the Week. I'm going to check that out. We'd like to highlight some rabbinic voices from across the nation as they share a bit of wisdom with us. Today we are hearing from Rabbi Adam Stein, who is the Associate Rabbi of Beth Israel in Vancouver. I've been thinking this week about something. I, I came across something that Rabbi Joel Levy wrote, a fellow conservative rabbi in Israel. He's at the conservative yeshiva in Jerusalem. And he's talking about how in the beginning of the book of Bumidbar, Numbers, where we are right now, we have another census. The people are, are counted and it's really specific. Many of these censuses, and you know, we're going through this Canadian census right now. I just filled it out yesterday. So it's really um, a, uh, um, a good meeting of these, these topics. But the censuses in the Bible, they're counting usually men of military age. And many commentators, actually even non-Jewish commentators, like historians like Herodotus, uh, uh, the Greek, uh, he says that when there are 10,000 immortals, the ancient Persian army, Herodotus is talking about them, um, it's kept at exactly 10,000 men. And he says that they're immortals precisely because of their facelessness and replaceability. But that's really, I, that, I think that's really tough to take. The, the Natsiv, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin from Poland, 1800s, he says something similar. He says the number of soldiers from census to census in the Torah remains the same and at the end of the, uh, the wandering in the wilderness and the beginning because they're utterly replaceable. But I think, I think no one's replaceable. We see this in the really awful violence going on in Israel, Jerusalem, Gaza right now. Everyone has a family, everyone has friends, everyone is a huge loss. I know you were talking about the Pew study in your uh, podcast um, and when they're, when they're interviewing people, adding more and more questions, trying to dig deep into people's lives, you, really that, you realize that everyone has a story. Everyone, as our tradition says, is an olam katan, a small world, a small universe. And I think it really is important for us to remember that, uh, that religion, Judaism in particular, should play a big role in impressing upon us that each person is, is holy and has sanctity and infinite worth. Before we go, a follow-up on our story from our last episode. The CJN reached out to JNF Canada and they declined to comment on the story or on Jason Sherman's film. And thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, May 13th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment on a rating on the platform of your choice and let us know what you think about our discussions on the CJN Lounge on Facebook. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Melissa Lansman. And I'm Ilana Zakon. Inhabitants with your divine plan that spans 57 some more centuries. Still heading towards our destiny. Desert to the pride lands, we struggle with pride, man. We never lost hope, but we dreamt of a time when finally reclaim what was rightfully ours. And we could celebrate and drink whiskey sours on a beach in a light. We'll see the daylight. You know the sunrise won't blind our eyes. Cause we've been through the darkest of nights, praying everything would turn out alright. Blessed be he who watches over me. For all that is given to me And it's love I will carry with me Cause love is what I got You got to sing with me I go lay, lay. I go
头。